What do you do? This is a pretty typical question to ask or be asked when meeting new people. There's always a number of ways to answer, but often people go with their day job or whatever consumes the most amount of their time during the week. But what if the things you're most interested in and putting the most creative energy into aren't things that you're doing full-time or even making any money off at all? One of the things that I uh, mentioned many times was, of course, like the importance of passion projects, especially, you know, if you're working um, professionally in a, you know, in a field that you love, but not necessarily in a job that is where you're doing the kind of stuff that you want to be doing, like finding your own passion projects, which you can use to like define yourself. Like I always go back to this saying, like, you know, I define myself by what I produce instead of what I consume. This is Rupa Dasgupta, an artist who spent the last few years painting and illustrating octopuses. I talk with Rupa about the things that define you as an artist, making time for personal projects and goals, and just how important it is to have mentors in your life. We also, of course, talk about a few bumps along the way. I'm Brandon Recton, and this is The Creative Struggle. You've been painting and illustrating octopuses for quite a few years now. What is it about the octopus that made it interesting enough to you to make it your sole subject? So there's a long story behind this. I was dating uh, this guy named David Mack, who's a comic book artist and creator. And we would go to these, you know, comic conventions. And because he's such a, you know, well-known artist, people from like different like art um, supply companies would like come and like give him stuff to sample. And so somebody from Pentel came to the table and gave him like a bunch of their like brush pens and stuff. And uh, they asked me like, oh, are you an artist too? And so at this point, like I'd been out of uh, undergrad for a couple years and I hadn't really been painting much. And I just wasn't feeling really good about where I was as an artist because I was like, I can't really call myself an artist if I'm not creating stuff. And so when this guy asked me, are you an artist? I'm like, you know, yes, yes, I am. And so he gave me these pens. They're like Pentel Hybrid Technica gel pens, just like really, really fine line, really smooth. And so I started dueling with those and they just had like a really, really nice feel to them, just really consistent black line. And I was just doodling stuff constantly, but it was just a lot of kind of anal retentive like line work, just like really repetitive lines. And it was really fun and meditative for me to do, but I just realized that it probably just wasn't very interesting for anybody else, just a little too abstract. So I was looking for like a way to sort of hone that into like a more interesting subject matter. And uh, at, at the same time, um, my dear friend, China Mieville, who is a science fiction writer, he wrote a book called Kraken. And he's like obsessed with octopuses. And so I was like, okay, let me give this a try. And so if you look at my sketchbook, like everything up until like the middle of it is just like, you know, this sort of like, you know, chaotic line work and just like some sort of experimental typography pieces. And then I do one octopus and then the rest of the sketchbook is just octopuses because they just are so fun to draw because, because they are so amorphous and weird to begin with. Like you can just use any approach to them and be like as literal and you know figurative as you want or as like loosey-goosey and like totally abstracted as you want and nobody can be like oh that's not an octopus mm -hmm. so they just never get old and like i've been able to do like so many different styles and approaches and different mediums and yeah they're just endlessly uh challenging and fun to do yeah that is interesting about that particular creature because like if you think of most animals i think if you were to take a picture of it if you waited like a couple weeks and you got it in the same like kind of conditions, you could take almost an identical picture of mm -hmm. it, you know, but yeah. like <laughs> uh, 
octopuses are like minutes apart. You couldn't get this yeah. picture of yeah, it. Yeah, just like comes to motion and everything. Just like the way they move, everything about them is so alien. So you had this subject, but then you were also experimenting with different types mm-hmm. of of illustration and painting. Did you gravitate toward one in particular? Um, I do think that that original style that I was doing, like just line work, like that's what I find the most fun because it is just incredibly meditative and I can just sort of zone out. I am at heart like I'm a watercolor painter. And of course, like the thing with watercolors is that they really kind of force you to embrace unpredictability, just sort of like go with the flow. So just based on that, like thematically, it works really well with octopuses as a subject matter. So how many years have you been doing that now? So I did it religiously for the first year every single day. And then uh, the second year I dropped off a little bit because um, I got engaged, which is not to say that like I got engaged and I suddenly wasn't an artist anymore. Mm-hmm. It was because uh, my brother also got engaged. And so I did his wedding invitations and then I did my own. And like I probably have not put so much effort into anything in my life as I did into yeah. those invites because uh, I got married at the Camden Aquarium. And so mm-hmm. I had these aquarium themed invites and um they like there were moving parts and like there were like four different like pieces of paper that i had to use to make them and they were just a total labor of love so i had to like put the octopuses on hold for a little bit to work on those um but since then like i i haven't been as consistent but i'll go back to them whenever i can and in all i've definitely done over 800 or so oh wow mm-hmm. that's amazing it's kind of insane if i like stop to think about it yeah very cool so Something I thought was interesting is when you were talking about doing these drawings of octopuses um, and your encounter at Comic-Con with like, are you an artist or not? Mm -hmm. You had been a designer. Yeah. This is, I think, a problem that I think a lot of designers have (laughs) because I have the same thing where you don't consider yourself an artist if you're doing design work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I, I love graphic design. I've, I have found a lot of great challenges in it and I've done, you know, personal work with graphic design too, but at the heart of it, I think, um, because most of the work I was doing was for other people, like it just didn't feel as legit, mm-hmm. especially being around, you know, being at a comic conventions, it's like so many of these artists, especially, um, my boyfriend at the time, um, David, like all of his stuff was just like purely his own creation. And I was like, I, cannot even like compare myself to people like that. But I mean, of course we know that comparing yourself to other artists is right. It's the beginning of the end. So yeah, yeah. it's incredibly hard to avoid, but you have to remember that. I guess that is something that's interesting about design is that it, it crosses over that border between uh, purely like an art form and then something that's very functional mm-hmm. and something like, you know, whereas like painting, you're almost always going to assume that people are doing paintings for themselves or commissions Mm -hmm. and they're going to be very creative they're not going to be painting instructions onto something you know so it's like but design I think it does kind of cross over uh and it can at least cross over into purely an art form or statement or Mm -hmm. other things what interested you in design that got you into that Mm -hmm. originally well, I think you just reminded me of this quote I heard once that art is that which has no function. It's like, it doesn't serve any purpose. It's just like a thing that is created purely for the pleasure of making that thing. Um, but yeah, like when I was an undergrad, um, I definitely did not plan on being a graphic designer. I don't think that field was even on my radar. I originally wanted to be an art therapist. I think ideally I wanted to be like a therapist who also was a tattoo artist. Like I wanted to help people like figure out tattoos that would be like therapeutic or cathartic for them in some way but for whatever reason I didn't stick with that idea it would have been awesome I kind of regret it but uh 
Yeah, so I was um, taking painting classes and doing these really big uh, watercolor paintings that were really personal. Like I was using a lot of symbolism and like every painting would have like pages and pages of notes and research that went into it. Um, and those were incredibly satisfying to do. Like those are probably the pieces that I'm most proud of. Mm -hmm. But I just found that like after I left school and didn't have those like deadlines and like the little sort of like nudge of direction that teachers would give us, like I just found it really, really hard to get, get back into like doing paintings like that. Mm. So yeah, that's why the octopus thing was such a godsend because it was like suddenly, you know, because I had my subject matter figured out, it just made it much easier to just make it more about the process and just the, the pure pleasure of making them rather than like trying to figure out subject matter. Right. I don't know if you've seen Ira Glass's short little talk on creativity, but basically- I haven't. I've actually met him a couple of times. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Um, he was in the, he had like a cameo in the Veronica Mars movie. Uh -huh. And my sister and I are like huge Veronica Mars fans. So we like, you know, paid like the highest or one of like second highest like Kickstarter tiers to like go to like the launch party and the premiere and all that stuff. So because he was in the movie, he was like at the launch party. Oh, awesome. And, which is one of my geekiest encounters. And it was like, you know, most people don't know what he looks like. And mm -hmm. so like everyone else at the party is like paying attention to Kristen Bell. And I'm like, oh my God, I heard less. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. <laughs> um, I brought him up though, because his, so his creativity talk, he talks about when you start out, you mm -hmm. know, um, that you don't really, you're not very good, mm -hmm. but you have like taste. Yeah. And the only way to get good is to do a huge body of work. Mm -hmm. So with doing 800 plus octopus drawings yeah. and illustrations and paintings, have you seen things that have, like what's the main thing that you've seen change over those 800? Well, that's interesting because I've, I've thought about the whole Malcolm Gladwell like 10,000 hours mm -hmm. thing. Like, you know, you have to put 10,000 hours into something to be like truly an expert at it. It's like, so most of my pieces that I do, this is actually one of the ways that the work I do now differs from the work I did when I was in school. Because like I said, I would do like, you know, all this research and like hours of planning and all that stuff. But with most of the octopuses I've done, it's just been one sitting, you know, most of them like less than half an hour. So just like really quick, it's, I very rarely like go back into them to like add stuff to them. I've thought about like the fact that I've spent so much time working on these. I should be an absolute expert at representing the octopus. But that was never really the goal. It's like, it's not like I'm trying to like perfectly capture, you know, a photorealistic depiction of what an octopus looks like. If anything, it's more to sort of depict like the spirit of that creature and the fact that it is sort of, you know, unpredictable and amorphous. So it's like, I mean, if you look at most of the paintings I've done, it's not like there are eight tentacles in each one or anything like that. Like I'm not going for something literal mm -hmm. uh, but it's been interesting to see that like the paintings that I've sort of like written off is like oh this is just like a little too you know literal it's trying too hard to like perfectly represent an octopus like those are the ones that people tend to go for <laughs> like uh, I have one that's literally called a little too literal maybe like that is the name of the painting and that is the one that people have like bought the most prints of and stuff so huh. yeah what do you think draws people to that well, it's, it's been really fun. Like, so I started selling my work at the Asbury Park uh, punk rock flea market, and I'd been selling my stuff on Etsy before, but the nice thing about doing art markets is that you get to see people's reactions to your work in real time. Mm -hmm. And people, like so many people, like have like a special connection to octopuses. And even if they don't, just like the idea of an octopus a day is just like inherently like goofy and whimsical. So people appreciate it for that reason. 
And again, it's like the the thing I was saying at the beginning that when I first started out uh, drawing again, I was doing just like really abstract stuff. And a lot of people, they just uh, have have difficulty with abstract work um, in any in any medium, really. Mm-hmm. I think the exception to that is when you start playing around with scale. Like if you have like really big abstract pieces, like people just sort of respond to those on more visceral level. Like... An example of that is uh, Mark Rothko, who's mm-hmm. a you know abstract impressionist painter. He just did like you know the, the color blocks, and when I first was introduced to his work, it was just you know in a textbook or something, and I was like, I don't really get what the hype is. And then I saw it in person, and I was like, oh, this is actually the size of an entire wall. And when you see it like at that scale, you realize you understand like the power of it. And so that's something that I've been trying to do more. Um, I have not been successful, but to like just go for like bigger pieces of work because most of the ones I've done are like four by six, which is very convenient. Like, you know, I can take my sketchbook and like just like pop out an octopus, like if I have 10, 15 minutes waiting somewhere. But it would be really satisfying to, you know, work on a bigger scale because I think people just respond to that. Mm-hmm. What's the largest piece that you've done? <laughs> Probably not bigger than like eight by 10, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, the ones I was doing when I was in school were like, 22 by 30 I think I did one that was like four feet by six feet Mm -hmm. so yeah it's just a whole different animal when you're working at that size and I think watercolor as a medium it's a little more difficult to to paint at that size Mm -hmm. um, just because of like the way the paint works and everything are the majority of the octopus paintings uh, watercolor so uh, all the ones that are painted rather than drawn uh, pretty much all of them Uh, well some exceptions I did some gouache and I did do quite a couple with squid ink Oh, Which, I mean, cool. I initially started using just because of like, you know, it's just, you know, kind of funny to use squidding to draw octopuses. Mm-hmm. But then when I started using it, I was like, this is actually really, really lovely because it's just, a, um, you know, it's just like very organic and it like, it like smells like the ocean. But also it's a really like rich, warm, deep black as opposed to anything that I've found like, you know, in a tube of paint. So mm-hmm. it's really nice for that reason. Where do you go to get squid ink? Uh, like, I think Italy in Italy, like, you know, oh, specialty, okay. like, uh, grocery stores will have it, like, Italian grocery stores, yeah. Oh, cool. Because, you know, people use it for uh, cooking and stuff. Right. Yeah. So you gave a talk at Monmouth University very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, what, can you remind me the, the name of the talk? Sure. So this was, a, it was like their art and, uh, art and design, like, career day. So I was talking to, it wasn't just me, it was uh, myself and... I think uh, four other creatives, um, you know, professional creatives uh, talking about their sort of path to get where they are mm-hmm. um, and any sort of advice that they might have for students. So it was, yeah, it was such a delight. I really, really enjoyed it uh, because, I mean, the path I've taken to get to where I am, like, and this is talking more about, like, my career as a designer rather than as an artist. Um, like, I took a lot of weird steps to get there, but I think there are, like, plenty of takeaways um, that people could learn something from. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I uh, mentioned many times was, of course, like the importance of passion projects, especially, you know, if you're working professionally, you know, in a field that you love, but not necessarily in a job that is where you're doing the kind of stuff that you want to be doing, like finding your own passion project, which you can use to like define yourself. Like I always go back to this saying, like, you know, I define myself by what I produce instead of what I consume. Mm-hmm. So, like, having something like that that is purely defined on your own terms is just so good for, like, your mental health, basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's really, really good advice. Because, I mean, this is something that I've struggled with a lot, too, is the idea of loving work. And I think that that's something that's kind of been sold to our generation is that you should find something where 
you know, oh, if you if you love your exactly. job, you'll never work another yeah, day. Yeah, of course. Blah, blah, and like blah. the person who gave the introduction to this talk, like mentioned that. And I, yeah. I just like kind of internally rolled my eyes. I was like, there are probably like five people on the planet who have that kind of job. Right. Yeah. Like, it's like winning the lottery. And yeah. it also like sets you up for this kind of like it's I think it sets you up to be dissatisfied. Yeah, everywhere. absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I, like, I totally appreciate the idea of doing a project that you're really into mm-hmm. as as a way to combat that that idea yeah. and also be more okay with the fact that like you know the goal of work often is to be able to you know feed your family and mm-hmm. pay your bills and like yeah. be able to you know live as opposed to like wake up every day and you know just be overjoyed to be going yeah, to the office exactly and that's why it was it was funny for me to be talking about my career because it's like I feel like career is a term that I think of when like I think about people who are you know doing like pursuing their passion as their job and stuff like that whereas for me like my my job has always basically been like what I think of as a day job like this is not like what defines me this is not um, the thing that makes me me and I love that about my husband as well because he's a associate dean at Monmouth University but if you ask him like you know oh what do you do like you know what are you he'll be like oh I'm a poet like, because that's his passion and that's how he defines himself. And I think it's a really, really um, pleasant reminder that your work is not your life. Yeah. Yeah. And how important it is to carve out a life and carve out time for your interests outside of that. Because we, especially our generation, like the whole like gig economy and the fact that so many people have to have like so many jobs to get by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like finding, like carving out that time for yourself and your, you know, for your own passions is, is so, and so important. Can we talk for a second based, like, sort of taking off on that idea of, like, letting your passions define who you are, mm-hmm. this idea of at what point it's okay to call yourself, like, an artist or introduce yeah. yourself as doing yeah. something if you're not, even if you're not making money off yeah. of it. Because I feel like it's such, it's this weird fine line yeah. where there's a lot of people that, like, claim a t- certain term and be like, oh, I'm, you know, an author, but yeah. if they haven't written a book, or, like, oh, I'm a musician, and mm-hmm. you, but if you're not playing anywhere, like, what, <laughs> do you ever struggle with that kind of yeah, uh, concept? Yeah, all the time. So so that actually takes me back to something that I mentioned um, when I was giving this talk. Uh, my friend Alexis Ohanian, who's uh, one of the founders of Reddit, uh, he wrote a book called uh, Without Their Permission, which is basically trying to empower people to, you know, um, again, like follow their passions and like put stuff out there, even if it doesn't feel like they have the sort of like backing or support that would make make it easier to do so. Um, and so he quotes, uh, I think it was um, like the LinkedIn founder uh, saying that uh, if you if you're not a little bit embarrassed of the thing you've just put out into the world of like the product you've just launched, mm-hmm. that then you've waited too long. Yeah. So it's like if you wait until you've totally proven yourself as an artist and like, you know, you've had shows and stuff like that, then you've waited too long. It's like you don't need to you don't need to prove that to anybody else but yourself, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and like I said, like the the whole octopus thing started because I was able to be like, no, I am an artist, even though I'm not making stuff right now. It's like I know in my heart that that is the thing that makes me me, the thing that will always be a part of my life. So in the last year and a half, um, I've really, really thrown myself into non-artistic pursuits. Like I'm, uh, like I'm a big time like weightlifter, I'm a marathoner. And so, you know, doing those things and also having a full-time job and also having a child means that there are, you know, very few hours in a day that I have to myself. And so 
at some point I just realized that like, okay, if I have like an eight mile run that I need to do in the morning before I go to work, that means I need to wake up at like, you know, five o'clock in the morning, which means I probably can't stay up until like 1am painting or whatever. And so like that creative part of my life has kind of a little bit like gone onto the back burner, but I know at the end of the day that it's like, it's not like that's something that's going to like, you know, fizzle up and disappear if I like take a couple months to focus on something else. Mm -hmm. And even now, like whenever I do have a couple minutes, if I have an afternoon to myself, like that is always the thing that I go back to, like, you know, taking out my sketchbook and doodling. Switching gears to go back to uh, your talk at Mammoth, I mm -hmm. think, correct me if I'm wrong, the title was Things I Would Have Done Differently. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What are some of the things that, that you would have done differently or what are some of the kind of like challenges that you've come up against? Mm -hmm. um, so one of them was uh, my choice of grad school. So I went to Parsons. I did uh, an MFA in design and technology and it was a fantastic program for some people, but it wasn't really for me. Um, I had done like a, a ton of research uh, when I was looking at grad schools and I was looking at uh, VCU's uh, brand center program. So this is Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just looked like a really, really incredible program. Um, like all the stuff that they had me do for the application was just like really challenging and fun. So just from that alone, I was like, this is going to be great. It's going to be a really good fit. Um, and I went and visited, loved it, all that stuff. But of course, I applied to other places, too. And so I did get in there, but then I got my acceptance letter from Parsons and I was like, it's Parsons. I'm not going to not go to Parsons. Mm -hmm. And so it was basically at the end of the day, like, even though I knew that the, the VCO pro VCU program was like perfect for me, I was like, you know, nothing's going to be able to beat like being able to say that I went to Parsons and going there and all that stuff. And also, you know, Project Runway is awesome. And I mm -hmm. thought that I was going to run into Tim Gunn in the hallway and stuff, yeah. which sadly never happened. Yeah. So went to Parsons. And one of the things that happened really on that sort of uh, threw me off course was uh, we had to do this boot camp thing where uh, it was like two weeks um, during the summer before we started the, the that first fall semester where it was an intensive and um, what was it like? coding, design, in, inter interactive stuff. And so at the end of that uh, two weeks, we were supposed to pick our sort of concentration for, um, for the program. So the three options were uh, interactive, animation, and coding. And uh, up until that point, like, you know, I like, you know, was a web designer developer. I'd played around a lot with uh, this program called Processing, which is a generative art um, uh, toolkit. Uh, so you can do a lot of like really cool, like creative, um, artistic coding stuff with it. Um, love that. And so uh, during this boot camp, like, you know, we did a bunch of projects in that and I really enjoyed it. Um, but uh, when we were presenting our projects, uh, one of the, the people who was like one of the directors of the program just like sort of ripped my project apart. Um, basically, like I remember so many details about this because it like got me so deep, but uh, I was like always really interested in the idea of synesthesia, which is, you know, this um, this condition where people's like senses, like the wires are sort of crossed. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with this? I've heard the term before. But yeah. Can, yeah can so you it's like so it? their senses are kind of crossed in the sense that like they'll see a color and like have some immediate like sort of like um, like smell associ association with it. Or like a sound will have like a color associated with it. Hmm. Um, but in a way that is sort of like, um, it can be like overwhelming. So while it does sound amazing and I would love to have that condition, I know that it can be really overwhelming for people. But I just thought that the concept of it was really cool because I love the idea of 
um, just connections between like disparate art forms, disparate senses, all that stuff. And so uh, like I looked up this chart where it showed like, you know, people with synesthesia, it's like they associate this letter with this color. And so I took the names of everybody in my class and sort of did this thing where like it would generate like pops of color based on the, you know, the letters of their name. And uh, while I was presenting this uh, project, which was, you know, supposed to be playful, it's not like supposed to be some sort of like deep analysis of like, you know, this condition, blah, blah, um, The So this person just like totally like ripped, she like interrupted my presentation to say like, oh, that's, you know, that's bogus. Like that is not how this works. Like that is not like the nature of that condition. And um, just really kind of humiliated me. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, like I would have thought that coding would be like the path that I chose for this program. But after that, I was like, oh, maybe I'm not so good at this after all. And oh, so I instead uh, chose to go the interactive route. And it's like, I don't care about people. Why don't I go that route? I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, and so the the person who uh, was the uh, instructor for the coding class during this boot camp, like he had been really impressed with, with my work. And so uh, I ran into him. I ran into him a couple weeks later, and he asked like what sort of concentration I picked for the program. And when I told him that I hadn't picked coding, he was incredibly disappointed because he was like, "Oh, you were such a natural at that stuff." And I just wonder now, like, if I hadn't let that one person like get under my skin, like I could have had a totally different path. But this sort of uh, brings in uh, another theme that I came up a lot during the talk I gave, which is the importance of having mentors mm-hmm. and people who can tell you that, like, you know, you're thinking about this. It's like you're you're like sort of pigeonholing yourself and you're focusing on the wrong things and your priorities are not what they should be. Like, I would have so appreciated somebody to tell me that, like, you know, really think about it. Like, what is it that you really care about? What is that you're most drawn to? And go with that and don't let, like, you know, one person and their discouragement, like lead you astray yeah that's that's another thing that i think comes up a lot for uh creative people is kind of like being tempered in fires of criticism Mm -hmm. and being able to get through it but then having a having a situation like that where you're being humiliated in front of people is a totally different type of response it's not criticism at that point then it's it's just uh, it's breaking you down, it, like yeah. artistically and as a person. Yeah. Um, that sounds yeah, that sounds kind of devastating. Yeah, and it was it was also really shocking to me because you know women in code like it's you know we're in the minority, and so uh, the person who like tore me apart like that was also a woman. So mm-hmm. I I felt like that was um, particularly cruel. Was she a coder as well, or was um, like do you, where was where yeah, is she not, coming from with the criticism? Know. Do you know? I mean, I could, I could, uh, you know, dissect that, but I don't want, <laughs> but I don't want to. Yeah. Um, well, isn't but, it yeah. weird that like you don't? All it takes, I mean, you could have like ten qualified people who are like that's their their jam every mm-hmm. day. Say mm-hmm. this is amazing, I love it, and one person that maybe not even be involved, yeah. like oh, I hate it, and then you're just like, yeah. this is worthless. Yeah. I mean, I was already sort of like on the fence about like whether I was good enough to to go that route, and after that, I was just like. Mm. Yeah, I guess not. It's not like I stopped doing that sort of stuff. Like, I still did it, and I did manage to, like, work it into my thesis project. Um, my thesis project, it was called a Antagonistic Couture. It was about a subverting the male gaze through fashion design. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and ultimately, it just ended up being um, dresses that were covered with images of naked men to <laughs> deflect the male gaze. Uh-huh. But uh, the initial concept of it was a lot more complicated uh, a lot more interesting, I think. Um, I'd wanted to use uh, eye tracking to 
to quantify the male gaze, like to to show, you know, the way that eye tracking works is that like, you know, a person puts on like a pair of like glasses or something and uh, their, their, the movement of their eyes is tracked like while they look at a screen or something mm-hmm. to, to um, display exactly what it is that they're looking at. So they use that a lot for uh, like advertising to see like, you know, is this design working? Are people focusing on the right stuff? But, you know, you can use it for anything. There was this amazing project called uh, iWriter, um, which was actually um, a collaboration between one of the professors at Parsons and some other folks. Uh, there was this uh, guy who was another like uh, new media kind of like creative person who had some sort of debilitating illness and was like left paralyzed. Uh, and he had always been like a really prolific uh, graffiti artist, like just had like really defined like style and like his own tag and everything. And so, you know, among the other many like, you know, devastating um, consequences of like his illness, like he wasn't able to create anymore. And so this guy at Parsons, uh, Zach Lieberman, who was just an incredible, incredible um, new media, digital, you know, creative coder kind of guy, uh, he did this project called the iWriter where he set up uh, eye tracking on this guy and had it like project like onto a building across the street. So even though this guy like couldn't communicate in any other way, like he could still use like his eye movement to like create the tags that he was doing before, like physically. And so through that being connected to like a projector, like he was able to basically like, you know, recreate that whole experience of, you know, tagging and putting his art out there in the world. Oh, it's amazing. Which is incredible. So it's, yeah, it's a technology that uh, has a lot of potential for really interesting creative uses. Yeah. I'm glad to see that accessibility is something that people are finally starting to pay a little bit more Mm -hmm. attention to, it seems like. Yeah, Um, that was, uh, sorry, go ahead, but I'll add on to that. I mean, I've I've seen it pop up in conferences more, and it seems Mm -hmm. like people are finally starting to realize that this is something that's important that there's a huge amount of people out there that need this and we can't just you know cater to the majority all yeah, the time yeah that that perfectly ties in with what i was saying during my talk at monmouth because since most of the work i do is for the government uh everything that we do has to be 508 compliance so section 508 was this um law i guess saying that uh you know stuff that is put out there by the government needs to be accessible to people with no matter what their sort of um, abilities are, like they need to be able to have a, a, an equivalent experience. Mm-hmm. And so when we um, do 508 remediation of projects, um, we're looking at like, you know, color contrast and, you know, everything has to, if it's a video, it has to have closed captioning and all that stuff. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's an extra consideration that, that goes into all of the work that we do. But again, it's, it's about limits and embracing the limits that it puts on you because, you know, we might not be able to use like the, the whole like array of colors that we would have wanted to, but it forces us to be more deliberate in our decisions. And I think that's always a good thing. Yeah. And of course, accessibility and making things as accessible to as many people as possible can only be a good thing. Jumping back real quick, this woman who criticized your project, <laughs> you mentioned that it's important for women to support other women. Yeah. Did you want to talk about that at all? Oh God. Yeah. Um, so it's another thing that I mentioned on my talk, uh, that it's so important to know your worth. So I've started uh, doing this uh, at my current job, like doing uh, mentoring. So speaking to younger designer developers, mostly who are female, and telling them basically, so going back to you know things I should have done differently. Um, you know, I, I loved working at Mammoth, but you know, higher ed, it's you know, it's a system that needs to work out a lot of kinks. Mm-hmm. 
And so even though they're charging whatever they're charging for tuition, like they were really, you know, it's really difficult to run a school basically. And so the salary was never, you know, what, what I would have liked or felt like I deserved, especially based on my you know, education and all that stuff. And so when I finally did leave and like, you know, start this, this new company, which is, you know, they're a huge company, they have a ton of money. Um, and they asked me like my salary requirements, I asked for something way lower than what I should have. And um, because I was able to form like really, really close um, friendships with my close um, co like developer coworkers, um, who were mostly male, uh, actually they were both male. So uh, I came in at like a senior consultant level and they came in at the associate level, which is like the next level up. But over the course of our conversations and just like working with each other, we just realized that like we're all equally skilled, same number of years of experience, same level of education, if not, you know, if not more on my part. And we actually had like the salary conversation, which is not a thing that people do very often, like just no. totally had super candid conversations about this is what I make, this is what you make, blah, blah. And I just realized like how much more they were making than I was. And um, I mean, that's one of those conversations that like you really have to gauge who you can have it with and who you can't have it with. But if it's something that you feel like your relationship can sustain, uh, it's so important to have that because it can only help you. Um, being secretive about those sort of things like it's not empowering anybody and so like finding that out um you know how much they're making and like seeing that i was just as skilled as they were it really uh, made me feel empowered to sort of ask for more and like make the case for why i deserve to like you know be promoted to that next level and so i was able to get promoted in a year which was fantastic and i mean granted i worked my butt off like i, I earned that promotion but um it was really really satisfying and mm -hmm. I was also empowered by the fact that like a lot of the leadership around me, it was young, it was female, like my boss is like, I think two years older than me or something. And she's just incredibly, you know, impressive. And yeah, I'm, I'm sad that it took me so long to like finally like realize my worth and ask for it. But in my mentoring meetings that I've had with these like, you know, younger women um, that I've told them like, this is something that you really need to think about because the, the two women I talked to, like, they, they both started recently and they're like, oh, you know, I think it's like too early for me to like think about, you know, trying to get promoted. And I was like, that is absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, any company that's worth its salt, like if you do like make it clear that you want to get to that next level, like even if they say no, they're going to tell you no, but here's why. And so they'll tell you like what it is you need to do, what it is you need to work on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it's so important for women to to ask for more, but also to like help each other and um, share as much of their knowledge and their advice as possible. I think there's this fear that if you ask for more money, that the next response, it's either going to be no, or it's going to be no and you're fired. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, which is, I, yeah. I don't think happens yeah, and, that often, but yeah, I think that that's the, where people's head goes. For sure. And I'm sure there are many companies where that would be the case. But yeah, if it's a company that isn't shit, mm -hmm. then hopefully they will give you constructive feedback mm -hmm. when you have those conversations. Yeah. And granted, I mean, you have to like earn it, but like, I think, um, you know, in that situation, like when my, my coworkers who are both named Tom, we all started around the same time. Um, when they saw the job listings available, um, there were, you know, the junior level and then there was like the senior level. 
Like I was, you know, I had like, you know, at least 10 years of experience in the field, but I was like, oh, I don't know this last job I had, like it wasn't like that challenging. I don't know if I'm really like qualified to go for like a senior design position. Whereas they were both like, oh yeah, totally. I went for the senior position. So it's like women just like have mm. this inherent thing where they feel like they're not qualified enough. Like they have imposter syndrome. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's really, really important to to try and get past that. I know it's impossible when you have like a lifetime of, you know, comparing yourself to men and seeing men get things easier than, than, you know, you do. But, mm. um, yeah. I think that's an important crossroads too, when you realize, okay, there's this big disparity of being, of saying, all right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go for that now. As mm -hmm. opposed to, I think a lot of people just get depressed and then yeah. they just say, well, I'm just, I don't, I don't know what to do now. Like I'm just, I'm, depressed and now I'm mad and I'm angry <laughs> yeah. at this and then yeah. that seems to be where a lot of people land and then they mm -hmm. just it's just this cycle of depression and anger yeah yeah and that's why I mean the whole thing of like you know women making whatever it is like 70 cents to like the dollar that men make I mean yeah some of that is definitely systemic but it's it's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy sort of thing it's like you know women think that they don't deserve more and so they don't ask for more and so they end up making less and it's just because like they don't have people telling them they don't have mentors mm -hmm. who are successful who are women telling them that like you know this is my path learn from it like you should yeah you you are just as qualified and skilled as your male peers and you should know that and you should be recognized for it if you would like to see some of rupa's artwork you can find her at an octopusaday.com that's all one word no spaces you can also find prints and wearables of Rupa's artwork for sale on her Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop slash an octopus a day. If you'd like to learn more about The Creative Struggle, you can visit my website at thecreativestruggle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>